Requisites, a podcast featuring conversations with scholars working in the Michigan State University Department of English. I am your host, Dr. Zach Cruzy. In this episode, I am joined by Associate Professor Tamar Boyajan. Tamar's research and teaching focus on medieval literature and culture, and she is someone in this department uh, whose work I've really come to admire and respect, and getting to know her both in conversation and in and other events has been a really rewarding uh, for me as a scholar and just uh, as a person in general. Her latest book, uh, The City Lament, Jerusalem in Crusading Narrative, examines the representation of the city of Jerusalem in narratives produced during the Crusades in the English, French, Latin, Arabic, and Armenian traditions. Uh, she has additional areas of specialization that include Mediterranean studies, medieval theology and historiography, and literary intersections between Europe and the Middle East and the medieval period. Uh, furthermore, for the last several years, she has been involved with a number of uh, DH projects, which sort of loops us back around to one of our earlier episodes with uh, Professor Chambliss. And those projects seek not only to digitize and archive medieval manuscripts from various institutions in the US, Europe, and the Middle East, but also attempt to expose cultural and literary exchange, affective uh, content of political forms in, in a transnational context. In the conversation you're about to listen in on, uh, she and I discuss her recent article, Buffer Zones, Notes on Afghanistan, Race, and Empire, which appeared in a special issue of Victorian Studies uh, that considers the challenges and promises of an evolving sort of critical landscape in the field. So you'll hear us talk a lot about race and identity and, and teaching and how to sort of make these ideas tangible and, and, and uh, relatable and practical uh, for, for our students. This is such a delightful conversation for me. Uh, and again, I cannot stress enough. Zarina is someone whose work and teaching I truly admire. I hope you enjoy listening in and I'll see you all on the other side. Finally, she is also interested in medievalism, particularly the expression of beliefs and practices in the Middle Ages in contemporary art, film and popular culture. And it is there where our conversation picks up. For the past several years, she has taught courses on Robin Hood in the English department. And I mentioned this in the course of our conversation, but I've been hearing about these courses ever since I arrived at MSU. And, so in, and in all honesty, one of my few regrets about my time here is not having the opportunity to sit in on one of these yet. And I mentioned this again, this is something else I mentioned in the course of our conversation, but I don't have a lot of love for um, Walt Disney movies. You know, I'm, I'm sorry, I guess that's you know, some sort of cardinal sin these days. But um, but the Disney version of Robin Hood is one that has always been a favorite. And Robin as a figure has been a constant sort of looming sort of presence in my own areas of study and interest. So in our discussion, we talk a lot about her course, uh, but we primarily focus on the new Robin Hood reader she is working on and the important ways in which this reader will help us sort of recalibrate and better understand one of the most significant figures in global popular culture. This is a really wonderful conversation. I had so much fun just listening in and like absorbing knowledge. And I hope that I hope that you do too. So enjoy the experience, listen in, and I'll see you on the other side. All right. 
Greg. So you are working on this new project about Robin Hood and which when I first heard about this uh, in as a course description and working with some of the other grad students around here in the department, like I was really excited about it because when I was a little kid, uh, I grew up watching the Michael Curtiz yeah. Robin Hood. Uh, and I found that one by accident because I wanted to watch the Disney Robin Hood. And then my parents right. went home from the video store, the Michael Curtiz one. So I, yeah. discovered, <laughs> I discovered classic Hollywood, classical Hollywood cinema and Robin Hood and Disney all in the same moment there. Uh, and those were stories that for me, you know, growing up were really important because they were like, you know, they're about an outlaw. They're about a rebel. They're about, um, you know, something that's, you know, very interesting and, and appeals to an appeal to, you know, a kid, uh, especially a kid like me. So, but as I heard more about the way that you were uh, thinking about Robin Hood and the way you were discussing it with students, I mean, it really just, I was really compelled by this because it just sounds so much, there's so much more here, right? And there's always more um, right. to these things. It's never the Disney version. It's never the Hollywood version, but to hear the ways that you were sort of thinking about, you know, how to find more with this were really interesting. So I, I wondered if you take some time to sort of walk us through like how you're reapproaching Robin Hood and then how uh, we sort of get to this place with this. Like what are the, what are the doors that open here? Yeah. I mean, the, the history of this project um, is really like a seven year history and it kind of documents um, one of the main focuses that I realized later I've had at, as a professor at MSU. Um, and so when I, when I first got hired, um, I obviously knew the work and knew of Lister Matheson, but I never had the honor of meeting him. But I did meet um, his partner, Tess Tavermina. And, you know, almost like as like a, a gracious gift of acceptance into the department, Tess presented me, uh, like I think it was our first or second meeting with, all of Lister's material on Robin Hood. And so I got this like gift and it was almost like a sign uh, for me to start thinking about Robin Hood. And of course, for me as a child, uh, being a person that was very much attracted to the Middle Ages from a very young age um, and looking at my dad's books on London and, you know, the outlaw hero and uh, thinking about ways in which outlawry intersected with being Armenian, being um, an immigrant, being a person who was displaced, right? Um, and thinking about how this character found a home in a space like Sherwood, I was very attracted to mythical heroes and fantasy literature, probably as a form of escapist literature when I was young, right? Um, so I was drawn to Robin Hood. I remember we used to go to this video store and rent the VHS with my dad, you know, and bring it home. Um, and so I was like, wow, this is, this could be an attractive class for students. It's exciting to me. It's exciting for other students. And so the first course I ever designed at MSU for the medieval 368 was around Robin Hood. And I conceptualized it in a way that thought about the figure from the medieval manuscripts all the way to contemporary film. And at the time, the last film was Russell Crowe's 2010 Robin Hood. So that's the way I imagined like Robin Hood and their Merry Fellows as like a trajectory of a story that dates back to the Middle Ages and has evolved through time um, until today and how and why that story changes. Why, for example, is the current younger generation not attracted to Robin Hood or doesn't think about Robin Hood like they would, let's say, Batman or Spider-Man, right? So these questions early on were important to me. 
And so this is, you know, I think my class was one of the ways in which they talk about your teaching and forming research and vice versa. And so a lot of the things I've thought about have been in the ways that I've taught this class in the last seven years. And really the reader that's coming out is the conclusion of the ways in which so much of the literature, the text, the volumes around Robin Hood have misinterpreted uh, this figure and the, the Mary Fellows, uh, Maid Marian, and how really this 19th century heteronormative de- description of Robin Hood and that society has dominated pretty much this whole understanding of the figure and the outlaw figure uh, from the 19th century onward. Another thing, of course, is that Robin Hood is not originally a British figure. And so there are many Robin Hood and outlaw figures across the world. We see them in India, China, the Middle East, you know, Russia. And so one of the things that I'm also interested in, and we'll talk in the introduction of the book, is the outlaw figure as a whole. And coupling with the 19th century colonial narrative of the British that kind of really usurped this figure as their own, right? And so when we think of Robin Hood, we think of Britain, we think of class structure, feudalism, but this is not a unique thing to English culture, right? And it's something that is a shared kind of figure or trope across many different cultures. So you're saying a couple of things there that I think for a lot of people who are hearing this for the first time, and I would guess probably for a lot of students who are approaching this for the first time, would be they for them would be surprising, right? Which is first that that their understanding of Robin Hood is not rooted in the actual sort of myth, right, or the actual sort of um, figure, right? The whether that's a historical imagination or, or or just one that's related to literature, and the other is that it, you know is directly related to that that he's not he's specifically not British, right, in in its origins. So so you touched on some of the roots there, you know, that there are that these figures you know exist in other cultures, you know, it's he's more of sort of a, it's more of like a globally understood archetype, right? But can you sort of nail down for us then or, or give us some insight into like where these specific versions of this originate? If we can't think of about where they originate, then, you know, like, you know, what, what helps them sort of take hold of, of our imagination then mm-hmm. in that way? I mean, I think one of the things to think about with Robin Hood um, is that it's a folk and oral tradition. So globally, all of the cultures that have figures like Robin Hood, right, or outlaw figures that are uh, protesting societal uh, inequities, right, that are thinking about the problems of class, etc., um, are coming from the people. So it's a myth and character that's created by people that are talking about the struggles of that people within that societal context. Um, and that becomes very apparent when you look back at Robin Hood in the medieval manuscripts, where they look very different than the Robin Hood of, let's say, Disney or, you know, Kevin Costner and et cetera, uh, which, of course, are interesting ways of thinking about the medieval world and reimagining them in contemporary film. But they don't necessarily match up. And I think a lot of students, when they start the course or start looking at the older material, which I teach in Middle English, is first a resistance because of the language barrier, but then they realize that the language is actually quote unquote easier, that there is a rhythm, there is poetry. So really it's poetry. It's the poetry of the people. And it's the way that the people could write and make apparent their struggles. And it's a safe place for people to talk about these things, right? Because it's secular. Uh, It's written by them. It's written for them. It's circulating orally. And this is also for us as researchers a problem later on, because 
each of the ballads of the early medieval tradition have only one surviving manuscript. And for example, Robin Hood and the Monk, there's a large lacuna or missing text uh, in the middle of one manuscript that survives. So we actually don't know what happened there, right? Because it's missing. And so we have to think about ways in which what could have happened or what could have been said. So it's not like, for example, Shakespeare, where we have different cordos of manuscripts of, let's say, The Tempest, and we're comparing these different versions and trying to think of the ways in which they came together. Here we have one version Right. And we're using that as a basis of understanding the society and culture and the oral tradition. And of course, this the legend comes before what's written down. So a lot of these versions are later. Right. They're 14th century, 15th century. So that's one of the challenges, too, of the project. The project focuses only on the manuscript tradition, not on printed books or later versions. And that was an intentional choice because it really wanted to focus on these early editions written in the medieval period as single manuscripts and really like scrutinize and close read how Robin Hood and their Merry Men is presented in these legends, both individually and collectively. Because a lot of them do speak to each other because they're contemporary, right? So you imagine that they were floating together in the time. And so you'll have interesting gaps in the text. Like, for example, the sheriff is killed by little John in, um, you know, one of the ballads. But then sheriff is back in another ballad. So the temporal is also interesting and the space and how it's functioning. But I think that's also what makes it stay alive, right? Because just because the sheriff is killed doesn't mean that the sheriff won't reappear, right? It's just part of these archetype of characters that are making the, the legend survive and carrying on through the stories. That's really interesting to, to hear it put that way, too, because it, it, in some ways it's, it's as though it's, you know, they're, they're, uh, they're serialized, right? Like right. the ideas exist and then you the the serializer you the contemporary person can do with these characters as you wish like i mean they are literally public domain here are the ideas here here are the ingredients to the recipe put it together what does your stew taste like i mean that's 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 like that's a really exciting way to think about this right and it runs really counter to the way that i think most of us think about contemporary serialized literature because we're always looking for continuity or sort of some sort of like rigidity like well if this happened here then we need to explain why it, it's happening differently here. Like there must be like, there must be like a multiverse here where there doesn't need to be that. This is just right. a continuum of ideas that exist or rather a network of ideas that sort of are sort of all happening at the same time. Right. Right. So, so that makes it sound to me then like part of, and if I'm way off base here, tell me, but it almost sounds to me like the sort of shift that that you're alluding to in the 19th century, it sounds like there's some sort of like industrialization there, like where stories are be- becoming standardized and then repeated and sort of printed and sent out. And like, once that's the printed story, that becomes sort of gospel truth as opposed to sort of an oral tradition. Is that, is that a fair way? To yeah, absolutely. And I think part of, so the, the, there's a number of things that the volume challenges and, and believes that are anachronistic ways of thinking about the legend. And one is exactly what you're saying, right? This, this focus on historicity, historicity sorry, um, and the idea that Robin Hood was and must be a historical figure, uh, a historical male figure, and that the 19th century defined this figure in a certain way, um, industrialized the figure, actually kind of took character away from Robin Hood and their Merry Men. So you have these static archetypes that just repeat themselves and regurgitate themselves in the literature, the editions, and the films that come later. And this is really the version that we all 
are familiar with. So, so in challenging the history and this kind of loyalty to the historical figure and that the historical figure must be true for all of this to matter, that is really one of the things that is thinking against the grain and saying that literature doesn't care if the figure is true, that legend doesn't care if the figure is true, that it doesn't matter if Robin Hood was real or not real. It's what Robin Hood represented that matters. It's what lived, right? And and the oral tradition that was carried on and then eventually like had to be written down because it was so important. Um, so this is this is really important. I think a different frame to think about it. And so when you're writing an edition that's not so much focused on history, it allows room for these different kinds of interpretations, and allows room for you to think about these characters as characters, as living characters, as evolving characters, and their interactions, right? Um, outside of this patriarchal heteronormative context. That makes a lot of sense. I mean, it, it, especially in thinking about in the way that you're framing it there too, is to step away from the historicity because to be perfectly frank with you, like, you know, coming up and I'm sure that I'm not alone in this, you know, and I think that this is what you're saying too. Like, that's how I understood it. Right. And like, I grew up not only watching, you know, those movies I mentioned early on, but also you couldn't swing a dead cat, you know, on the history channel without finding some, like the legend of Robin Hood. And, oh, we found his grave. And, you know, right. and all of right. these things. Right. At some level, those things don't matter. And what I'm hearing, what I'm understanding from you is that they also seem to reinforce a very particular imagination of the world that is white, that is heteronormative, that is, that reinforces, uh, frankly, some imperialist impulse. That's right. Some level. That's right. So that, that makes this thing even more exciting to, to hear about in that way. And you were talking about some of the, uh, you know, not just the oral tradition and working with the manuscripts, but sort of the global nature of the archetype. So it sounds like you're bringing in available text from all over the place. So how does that, how does that sort of compilation process work? I mean, as it relates to translation, as it relates to trying to sort of get the rhythm and the meter of the poetry. So it, it flows in the way that expresses the meaning. I mean, Mm -hmm. uh, talk about that a little bit. The introduction is structured in a way that will bring into account and include the different kinds of Robin Hoods around the world. So it will start by acknowledging that Robin Hood is not a British figure, that this archetype is something that's global, that speaks to a lot of traditions. And so it will outline those examples in many ways at the beginning. But the main focus of the reader is on the medieval manuscripts in the British tradition. And so it's four texts, uh, three ballads and one play. And the way the reader is structured is that I have taken the transcription of the original manuscript of each of these ballads and the play, and I offer them to my reader. And it's almost identical form. And what I mean by that is I include strike throughs. Uh, I include superscripts. I include marginal notes. So it, it wants to provide the reader with an experience of how they would, might feel if they sat in front of this manuscript. And for those people that don't know how to read Middle English from a manuscript or haven't studied paleography, I still want them to feel what it feels like to sit in front of a manuscript, to decipher letters, to think about these letters as art forms or how they appear on the page or the process of the person who was trying to document this story, right? This oral tradition. And that was really important to me. And that's something unique that you don't see in medieval studies because oftentimes the editor will correct 
Um, and so what I have in the notes is the, uh, the different editors and how they might have amended a line, how they might have transcribed it differently. And of course, I rely on Lister Matheson because he has this wonderful volume of the Robin Hood texts and he has done a lot of work with the transcription. So I'm actually like it was interesting to be in conversation with Lister and the book. And obviously, I can't unfortunately ask him, but to be like, oh, Lister thought of it this way. Right. And this is how I think of it. So it's really a dialogue with additions coming together, but still maintaining the original form of the manuscript and then conversing in the notes about how these different people thought about different things or interpreted a line or a scribble. That will be on a side-by-side translation with the Middle English version that I have translated. And I call it a translation, and it's really interesting because we're talking about a single language, and most people think of translation as one language to another, the in, like the meaning of one word to another word, right? Almost like a literal understanding. But for me, I see translation here as the experience of the manuscript, the letters, how they come together, the translation of others as they interpret those letters and meanings, and then my own version in Middle English of how I would retell the story. So for me, the Middle English translation is a story that is being retold. And the way I thought about it when I translated it was how would I tell this orally? So I tried to kind of recreate that same feeling, uh, that same kind of energy, that same sound that is coming from the manuscript that I assumed the person who transcribed it or put it to words was also trying to do, bearing in mind the oral tradition. I was very lucky enough to work with my graduate student on this project and Ronnie Ford translated the Middle English bearing the manuscript tradition in mind into a modern English version. And so I know in many ways that Ronnie also thought about the, like the modern version as a story. And it's there where you see kind of intricacies also in pronouns um, that I'm happy to talk more about and gender and sort of questions on gender and sexuality and things like that. I do want to hear about those before we, before we jump to that. Cause I think that there's, there's a lot at stake in those in those later questions and conversations. But one of the things that that sounds so fantastic about this, this whole deal is what you're pointing to is just sort of a recreation of the, the conversation, the experience, right? Because these are, these would have been experiential texts to begin with, right? I mean, very few people are sitting around, they're not sitting around a campfire, like all like looking over a shoulder, like someone is reciting this or they're singing it or they're, or, or something along, something along those lines. Like there's a performative element to this and to sort of, recreate that experience both in the reading process but also in the in the translation process that's got to be really exciting to be able to put together right and as a reader of something like this that would that would be a thrilling thing i would think to to understand to sort of relive the moment right to sort of get a sense of what ideas were what stories were and how these feel to sort of see them move before you and thinking about translation in that way as not just, you know, as you say, as a one-to-one sort of this word means this word, which is almost never a great way to approach translation. Right. But, but to, but to frame it for readers, you know, in, in any number of contexts as an experience to understand, to feel, to know, to hear, right. As opposed to, again, this very rigid sort of 19th century version that prescribes every jot and tittle to you and how you should understand and know and and interact with these characters and what they mean in context D, E, or F, right? So I think that that's that's an incredibly important sort of way to think about that. And it has to be 
it has to be at some level for certainly for students in class, like a really eye-opening experience to come to that. And so, oh my God, it's, it's new, it's exciting. So from there, I do want to, I do want to lead into sort of the, the larger sort of stakes, some of the larger stakes of this, which you, which you uh, pointed to with, as it relates to sort of pronoun issues and gender and sexuality in Robin Hood, because again, I think that that's something that for most of us is, has been pretty prescribed by a very 19th century perspective on on gender and whiteness and all of these things. So, so how does, how is this going to, how is this collection going to help us sort of reframe those conversations or better understand them? So to think about questions around gender and sexuality, the book considers two main kind of approaches or frames. One has to do with the society at the time and this misunderstanding or imposition of 19th century ideas of gender and sexuality onto the middle ages with the assumption one that they operated the same way, and two, that we could read them the same way. Mm-hmm. And, and these are, of course, not true. So it really understands these questions uh, within medieval Britain, within medieval Mediterranean, within medieval society, and within what's happening in the characters of Robin Hood, right, and these ballads. So that's one way in which uh, the book is kind of pushing back on those heteronormative frameworks and indicating ways in which, you know, for example, uh, I, I use they and them pronouns for Robin. I call them the merry fellows, not the merry men, right? Because it's this idea of fellowship. And so these kind of very intentional choices and word choices are ways in which I've tried to bring attention to those assumptions that are being made. But the second, I think, and more important when you're thinking about translation, not necessarily more important, but like just as important, is language itself. And so there's a number of things happening. One, this reader will be uh, the only reader that is produced on Robin Hood by a woman. And so I think it's telling that the people that have worked on Robin Hood have mostly been men. I think it's telling that when you look at and compare the other editions of the text and how they transcribe the manuscripts, that there is places where there's these assumptions made. There's places where the ye is like changed with he. So there's a very um, loose kind of attention to pronouns and words in the original document that assume already Robin is a male, right, that assume that the merry men are all male um, and use those terminologies. So there's a number of places throughout all the ballads that I indicate where these errors have been made in the past. And I offer a rereading of the text by showing through the original and my Middle English version that there's um, that actually those changes that are made in the later versions are not true and that they're errors. But the other thing has to do with language itself and the what we call grammatical and natural gender in language. So the reader does, uh, has another goal of helping its audience rethink what we mean by gender and language and those associations, right? It's interesting because this idea of gender, English doesn't necessarily have gender, but a lot of languages have gender and old English had gender. So nouns had gender and were assigned gender. And what we mean by that is a word is assigned either masculine, feminine, or neutral, but the relationship between the word and its assigned gender is arbitrary. But what has happened over time is that the assigned gender that is supposed to be arbitrary has informed the way in which people read the essence of the word. And they think that because something is assigned feminine, that the word itself should be attached to femininity or female, etc. So this is one way in which I rethink the idea of gender because Middle English loses gender 
And so there is a fluidity in the words and there's different ways in which um, these words can be reinterpreted because if we don't think of them in a modern context and we, if we think of them in the way Middle English functions, it leaves more room for these kinds of interpretations. And so I look at this in language itself. I look at this in which pronouns worked in Middle English. And then I also actually trace uh, the use of third person pronouns in, middle, in, in medieval literature to something like uh, William and the Werewolf in 1375, which is very easily using they, them pronouns and is not something that it considers like not natural to the language itself. Uh, a couple of things, a couple of things jumped out to me, you know, as you're, as you're talking about this. And the one thing that I think there's so much promise in is thinking about, you know, pronouns and gender fluidity right. and all these things in these manuscripts is that it's, it's happening with known quantities. So right. it allows the reader to, to take a known quantity and think about it in a new way. And I think that right. that's sort of, that's in a lot of ways, that's a really important thin edge of the wedge for a lot of people to sort of open up the possibilities of language and how people existed as opposed to the sort of later interpolations that you're talking about, that the imposition right. Right. Of, right. of later readers, I think is, uh, you know, being able to sort of conceptualize them in that way, like because they are, are known quantities makes it very easy. And it's something I guess, and, I, and I'm not trying to fumble too much for my words here, but it's something that happens a lot now in popular culture as well, right. where, the, where there is uh, race or gender swapping in order to take a known quantity and imagine them in a new, more equitable way. Okay. And it's, it sounds like a project like this is sort of really closely related to that kind of, to that kind of thinking, to, to be able to be more equitable in our language, more equitable in the way that we're thinking about these, uh, these texts. And I think too, the last thing I want to say about this before I turn it back to you is that this is another instance to me where scholars working in, in medieval and early modern literature are really doing some of the most vibrant and interesting and important work in the humanities right now, because they, because so many folks in your field are, you know, interested in projects like this that recuperate and reassess and reevaluate the past from a particularly not white male imperialist That's right. colonial perspective right. and, 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 and um, revitalizing a lot of things that, you know, for, for lack of a better term, have been lost to us as scholars, as thinkers, and just as lay consumers of, of these right. things. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting too, because, for example, um, the pronoun he, which also could be heo, has been sometimes misrepresented by medieval scholars as she and he. But we know later, I mean, like one of the things I show in the book is that they were interchangeable. And so there's these arguments that, well, Robin Hood is male because of the use of the he pronoun. That's not necessarily true in Middle English, right? And so these are ways in which the book is kind of challenging these readings, right, of the language and, and showing that actually for a very long time, these were, there were interchangeable pronouns, that there wasn't a regularity of pronouns, that in fact it is quite possible and very highly probable that Robin was considered probably a person that didn't have to quantify their gender, right? And the way in which we think of Robin and the way that Robin works in the ballads doesn't even have to do with gender, actually. And in fact, it, Robin and Little John build a very significant relationship 
with each other. They are so playful, right? You see sexual kind of flirting and tension. And so when you kind of decouple from these expectations of this like heteronormative reading, right? It allows you room to understand these dynamics in very different ways and to allow room for multiple dynamics to exist. And to say, I mean, one thing I love and always felt attracted to by medieval literature was there is never, there never has to be this right answer. If you read something like Gawain, like you never really know why certain things happen in the story. And I think like it's this modern kind of urge to try to explain everything in narrative and writing and to say like this has its place here and this has its place here. But I feel like the beauty and one of the beauties of medieval literature is that that openness and the idea that you could have a character and you never knew what happened to them or you could like start developing a storyline that never went anywhere. We are comfortable with those things that just kind of fall out. And I think it's actually like you were just talking about. I think it's the it's the medieval world and the way it functions and how it's so loose in those ways in its secularity that allows for us to feel more comfortable by not having the answer or the historical answer, right? Or this kind of right answer. And I think that that is such a beautiful and poignant way to put it that I think that that's a terrific way for us to end this conversation. And thank you so much for your time and sharing these ideas. This is such an exciting uh, project and I'm so envious of the students that get to take it with you and the, uh, and the grad students that get to TA for it because this is, this is really exciting stuff. So, yeah, thank you so thank much you. for inviting me. Yeah. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm so glad you were here. This is, this is exciting stuff. It really is. Thank you so much for spending some time with us here at Prerequisites. This episode of the program is supported by the Russell B. Nye Fellowship for Interdisciplinary Curricular Enhancement in English from the Michigan State University Department of English. You can find out more about MSU English, including graduate and undergraduate programs at english.msu.edu. This episode of Prerequisites was written, produced, and engineered by Zach Cruzy. Until next time, this is Dr. Zach Cruzy. Good day. In the end, it remains a simple thing. But for each moment,